You can turn in your Bibles to the last page of the Bible, unless you have like an index, uh, Revelation 22. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just look it up, uh, NIV Revelation 22, it will, it will come up. But we're going to be jumping all over the place. Uh, how do you deal with a story that's end is a beginning? If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, he tries to capture uh, what this means in the last book in this series when he says this. As for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover, the title page. Now at last they were at the beginning of chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We have been doing basic doctrines of the Christian faith, and today we're on the last one we're going to do. We've done the Bible, we've done God, we've done Jesus, we've done the Holy Spirit, um, we've done... Um, oh gosh, what else have we done? <laughs> Sorry, we've done the church, and now we're doing the return of Christ, the end. Now, this is a doctrine uh, that creates a lot of responses for people. One is that people are uncomfortable. I mean, listen, we spend every month, I mean, every year on the first coming of Jesus. We don't have any problem, baby in a manger. You want to sing about it? Everyone be like, let's sing about it. You know, teenage parents, the wise men, the shepherds, we love that stuff. We sing Silent Night. We light candles. We do Joy to the World. I could preach on the beginning of the Gospels, you know, every week almost, and you guys be like, do it again, do it again. The first coming of Jesus gives you the warm, fuzzy feeling. I mean, we have Christmas albums, right? And people sell a lot of money making Christmas albums on the stories of Jesus' first coming. But have you ever seen an album on the second coming of Jesus? Have you ever seen a list of songs that, and now we're going to sing about Christ's return and we're going to celebrate it for a month and we're going to eat as much food as we possibly can over this next month and we're all going to gain 10 pounds and fast at the end of this thing and why are we going to do it? I don't think any of you have spent a month celebrating the second coming of Jesus. We love his first coming. The second coming makes us uncomfortable. But there it is in the Apostles' Creed. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Even liberal churches who don't believe much about the Bible at all, they recite it every week. I'm just wondering, do you know what you're saying? And then on the flip side of it, some of us are uncomfortable, and then some of us as in the majority of Christians, have this has kind of an opposite effect, and that is the unending fascination with the return of Christ. Apparently, many people find it impossible to believe it unless they know exactly when it is, or, you know, they, they won't really believe it unless they have someone else tell them exactly when it is, and they're even willing to give money to someone else to tell them exactly when it is. I mean, I could write a book a comedy or a tragedy, I'm not sure which, on the history of people predicting things. Now, I sometimes get pamphlets in the mail, uh, and they're always uh, different, bold, italics. The font changes up and down, but there's always a rebuke of me. In it. And at the end, what, what is the case? They know exactly when Christ is going to come back. 
they've got it figured out. They've read the newspaper or whatever you read and media, and they've read the Bible, and they've held them together, and they've clearly figured out Jesus coming back. And so the Antichrist has been Hitler. It's been Jimmy Carter. It's been Ronald Reagan. It's been Kissinger. It's been the forces against Donald Trump. It's always narrow. And this is how you know it's wrong. It's always uh, through the lens of American history only. And it's always <laughs> in a way that, man, you've really got to figure it out. I mean, have any of you uh, read 88 Reasons Why Christ is Going to Return in 1988? <laughs> I, I would have loved to have been with that guy on New Year's Eve. You know, just been like 10, 9, 8, 7. Happy New Year. You missed it. She, I mean, what happens to that book? The sales just, you know, plummet. No, 89 reasons in 1989. Some of you in the last 50 years, you have books on your shelf, admit it, that tell you when Christ is coming back. I have friends, they set up prophecy conferences. And in these prophecy conferences, you will know what these events for today mean in relation to, really, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, the book of Revelation. Some of you have been to these. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned? Martin Luther, the starter of the man who started the Protestant Reformation, wrote in 1528 that he thought Christ was going to come back before he finished the translation of the Old Testament. He had reasons for this. He thought, you know, the world uh, was made in seven days, and so uh, the earth is about 6,000 years old, and so one year is like 1,000 years to the Lord, so there will be 6,000 years of time, and then there will be this millennium period, and that's when there's a time of rest. And so he was writing in 1540, you know, things are pretty bad. I think Jesus is actually coming back in my lifetime. There have been cults whose entire existence is around the return of Christ. How about the Jehovah Witnesses? Their original leaders, 1878, 1881, 1914, 1917, 1925, 1975. And, you know, I don't want to pick on everyone, but here's the, here's the Evangelicals, the Left Behind series. 16 books between 1997, or 1996, 2007. It sold 65 to 80 million copies, roughly. That's more than Little House on the Prairie. That's more than Winnie the Pooh. That's more than Magic School Bus. That's more than Hardy Boys. And so we come to the Bible with people who've got it all figured out and people who are super uncomfortable. We have 318 references in the New Testament to the coming of Christ. That is one out of every 13 verses Almost every moral command is tied to the return of Christ in some way. And so by the end of all of this, I just want to keep you out of the ditches. The ditches of, I've got it figured out. And the ditch of, I don't really love what the Lord is going to do. So that you can pray the final words of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. So we're going to be in Revelation, also in Matthew, a couple other places. Just to answer two questions. When is he coming? Man, our founding pastor, Chris Blackmore, said, I'm so glad you're going to tell us when he's coming. I'm like, Chris, leave me alone. <laughs> and then second, what is going to happen? So when, when is he coming? What is going to happen? And then under both of those, how do we live in light of when is he coming and what is going to happen? Okay, when is he coming? Ver Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, or look, I am coming 
soon. Okay, Jesus, that was 2,000 years ago. What do you mean, soon? What's going on? You know, and throughout the New Testament, th this type of language is, is pretty common. You have in 1 Peter 4, 7, the day of the Lord is at hand. You have James, the half-brother of Jesus, saying it's at the door. The book of Hebrews says as the day is approaching. So you've got approaching, you've got at the door, you've got at hand. And then at the same time, you have Jesus' pretty strong words that I wish people who've got it figured out would read every once in a while. Matthew 24, 36, and we'll be back and forth. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Stop writing books. No one knows. Guess who doesn't know? The angels in heaven don't know, nor the sun. Isn't that crazy? Like, fit that into your theological grid. I don't know. But only the Father. So what does it mean that Jesus didn't know and yet it's soon? What does it mean the angels don't know but it's soon? Because everyone seems to be writing about it like it's coming. I think that you should read all these passages in a certain way. And that's not to say the Lord could come now, 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 now. But that he could come in our lifetime. He could come uh, at any moment if he wanted to. He could come in the next few years. It's potentially near. And, you know, someone who mocks Christianity might say, that's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. See, Jesus was wrong. Do you know, actually, C.S. Lewis, who did the Narnia, he actually thought Jesus was wrong. He's like, Jesus messed this up. There's no other way. Well, Peter addresses this, the man who denied Jesus. He writes in his letter, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Notice the words. He's helping us. Don't call God's delay slow. Call it patience. Aren't you glad he waited? People who've come to Christ, aren't you glad he didn't return until you knew him? And let me just push it home a little bit. I know you got a lot of questions and you're not going to get all the answers here. The New Testament, I think, is crystal clear essentially on three things. One, it's definitely happening. Two, you can't possibly know when it's happening. And three, therefore, be ready for it happening. It's going to happen. You can't possibly know. Stop trying to figure it out. And therefore, you must always be ready. So how am I supposed to live in the fact that it's soon? It's coming He's going to come back. He's alive right now. He has to be alive or this whole thing is a joke. And he's coming back, not as a baby. Well, Paul, um, in a letter to his uh, mentee, Timothy, actually tells us. Thanks, Paul. Here it is. This is 2 Timothy 4. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but all those who have longed or loved his appearing. So if you actually compare that verse to Revelation 22, you've actually got the same thing. You've got he's coming back, he's a righteous judge, and now to tie those together, he will reward everyone who longs for it. You know, the return of Christ is good news to people who have bad lives. You have cancer, you want the return of Christ. You've faced injustice. People in here have faced massive injustice. You, you want the return of Christ. You have the law working against you. 
you're experiencing pain at any kind, you, you cry, Lord, where are you? Lord, come back. I mean, this week, I'm going to be honest, I was struck by something for the first time in my life, which honestly made me feel quite ashamed as I thought more and more about this. So this is confession time uh, by the fireside with your pastor. Uh, I remember being a new Christian, and I got kind of roped into the Jesus could come back like at any moment, any moment, any moment, any moment. And so you needed to be ready at any moment. And some of the people I know would actually put their shoes out and, you know, clothes out and all sorts of, you know, weird kind of... Just weird stuff, okay? The bumper sticker, the whole thing, there's going to be a rapture. And the guys would say, I'm a bachelor to the rapture, whatever. But I would hesitate because I would say things like, I sort of want to get married before Christ comes back. And you know why I'm thinking that. And I sort of want to have kids. And I kind of want to do this. And I kind of want to experience that. So Jesus, don't interrupt my life. And you know what? That is probably the most self-absorbed attitude anyone could have. Why? Because it's completely ignorant of the pain that is going on around you. I mean, I'm living in a bubble. And it's total absorption, absorption that I don't care about injustice. You know, this week even, I was talking to my friend who's a missionary in the Middle East, and he had led, uh, his wife had led a woman to Christ, and they had met with her, and her husband uh, had locked her in the house and would not let her leave when he found out, and locked her in a bedroom and said, you, you can't leave, I'm ashamed of you. And so here I am, hey, Lord, uh, I want to experience some things, and here's a, a dear woman, now sister in Christ, locked in a bedroom by her husband who's supposed to love her, because she has trusted Christ and she's locked in there. And I'm going to say, hey, Lord, don't interrupt my life for her. You have friends who are suffering horrible deaths. What do I say to migrants going across the Sudan by foot and being shot at? Or children being caught up in slavery? Or a whole host of other pains that people have around the world. And I'm saying out loud, two friends, I'm even joking about it. Hey, Lord, don't interrupt my life. Don't come back yet. Don't make this world right. Don't undo all the suffering. I want to go to Florida. I would never say that, but do you see how selfish that sounds? Thank you. <laughs> Think of 2 Timothy 4. I'll just go back. I, I kind of baited you. I'll read the two verses again. There's in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous steward, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all. But notice what he says next. Listen to these words. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessaloniki. So here you have the people who love, long for the return of Christ, and you have Demas, for all of time, being the guy who abandons Paul, doesn't want to suffer, thinks it's too hard. To put it, put it really simply, to love Jesus is to love his return and everything that comes with it. And I think, take this to heart, friends, I think we are more in love with figuring out the puzzle of when than just the fact he's coming back. 
there are real moral imperatives that come with the fact that he's coming soon. You, you, you just can ask yourself one question. Is there anything in my life that if I was doing it, at the moment Christ came, like a thief in the night or immediately, I would be ashamed of doing? That's what the return of Christ is supposed to do to you. It's supposed to ask that question. And I think God essentially it teaches two things and, and kind of helps us in two ways to think about the return of Christ. And these are in Matthew 24 and 25. And you can read these. I'm going to read some of it to you now. This is Jesus teaching on, I think, end times. Here's Matthew 25. It's a long parable. I don't care. I'm reading it. Matthew 25. At the time the kingdom of heaven will be, this is a parable, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not put any oil in them. The wise ones, however, took oil jars along with the lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they became drowsy and fell asleep. Keep going on the slide. <laughs> At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish one said to the wise, Give us your oil. Our lamps are going to go out. While they're away to buy their oil, the bridegroom arrives. The virgins who were ready went in with them into the banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others came back and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And he replied, Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the hour. So what's the point? The ten virgins are people who claim to be Christians. He's come, here's a betrothed king. This is Jesus coming back for his bride, the church. They have one job, these ten. Keep the lights on. The bridegroom is coming. Keep the lights on. Do what he's asked you to do. Well, they fall asleep. That's not the problem. Everyone has to rest. We're humans. But then when he does come, only five are ready. Because they didn't take the necessary preparations. And so you can get the point here, right? The problem is not that they're ready, not ready. The problem is not that they're sleeping. The problem is that they haven't taken purposeful step. But we can even push it further. Look at how foolish the story gets. They get out their lamps and they start trimming them and they have no oil. They're like, look at my lamp. It can't do anything. And then they begin to ask the other people, give me the oil. What's that? That's faith. They're saying, hey, give me your faith. Give me the power of the Holy Spirit so I can light this thing. And they're like, we can't give that to you. And so they run out and they come back and Jesus is here. And there's a celebration going on and they knock on the door and he goes, I don't know who you are. Jesus is coming soon. And so stay awake. Lay off the spiritual malaise. But then he has a second thing. And this is right before in Matthew 24. And the, the basic teaching is, do whatever God has for you. See that you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Soon, right? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose masters find him doing so when he returns. What's the point? point is God's coming back and he's given everyone something to do therefore go do it go to work have friendships eat steak have chips and salsa go on a hike find a job have a routine go to class listen 
if I'm hiking or standing in a stream or eating bacon, I'm not going to be ashamed at that moment if the Lord comes. Like, oh, no, I should be doing something else, something more, you know, whatever the church says is the best thing to do. I am going to enjoy what God has given me. I'm going to submit my life to him, and I'm going to just go do what he has for me. Work, steak, the laughter of children, bacon, of course, hiking, enjoying a recreational activity, Bible study, enjoying friends. I'm going to do whatever God has for me. That's the teaching of Matthew 24. All right. So the fact that he's coming soon shines the light on your life. You ready for that? At any minute, is there anything that is in your life right now that you would be ashamed of if he walked into this door? Be like, I'm at church. He'll be happy at me. No, come on. He sees right through the lamp with no oil in it. All right. What's going to happen? Verse 12 through 15. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to each one according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So let's talk about this. First, there are things that are going to precede his coming. This is Matthew 24. This is Mark 13. This is Luke 21. Honestly, go study it for yourself and ask other people questions, okay? Like, I just commend it to you. Do your own deep study. I'm only going to say one thing about it. And this is Matthew 24, verse 1. The disciples say to Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be a sign of the coming and the end of the age? So it's the question everyone asks. So here's his disciples asking. And Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you, for, for many will come claiming to be the Messiah, and they will deceive. And he goes on, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still not come. Nations will rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. And those are the beginning of the birth pains. Here's the only point. Verse 6, what does it say? Watch out, no one that deceives you. Why? Because the end is still to come if these things happen. Verse 8, all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. So these are Braxton Hicks contractions. Okay? These aren't the contractions. And so if you read these passages and go... Well, there's uh, international strife, and there's famines, and there's uh, war, and there's all these things. Clearly, Christ is coming back soon. That's not what it says. It says these are the Braxton Hicks contractions of the coming of Christ. These are the things before the things. And how long have those things been happening? Since Acts chapter 1. Christ leaves. Have there been a couple of wars? A couple of earthquakes? A couple of famines? International strife? Yes, of course. It's that this period between the first coming and second of Christ is marked by these things. And so when you read this passage, Matthew 24 and 25, and you who study the Bible, you know I'm glossing it. Okay, you win. Bottom line is these are the beginning of the birth pains that lead to the anguish that lead to the joy. All right. Second, it means his presence will be on full display. This is Matthew 24 again. You know, many picture, many uh, uh, art pieces of art and, and even in Scripture, 
portray Jesus as coming in clouds. You know what I'm talking about? We sing the song, behold, he comes. Everyone's, not this church, but you know, you get into the Pentecostal churches. Climbing on the clouds, rising like the sun. He's coming on the clouds. He's riding on the clouds. It's Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear the, a sign, the Son of God from heaven. All the people of the earth will mourn when they see him. Coming on the clouds in power and glory. Notice he's coming not in the clouds. He's not riding on the clouds. He's coming with clouds. He's bringing clouds. And why is that important? Because cloud, he, he's not in the sky. This is, this is the picture. We've got it messed up. He, the clouds have a very uh, important kind of theological meaning in the Bible. Here it is. In Exodus, for example, God leads his people. And what does that thing look like that he's leading them with? It looks like a cloud. Here it is, Exodus 30. Oh, they put it on the screen. Shoot, you cheaters. By the day the Lord will be, by the day the Lord went ahead of them with a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way by night and a pillar of fire so that they could travel day or night. What is God's presence? It's a cloud. God gives the law to Moses later in Exodus. And here's what it says. Notice there's some repetition in these verses. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. Okay, there's one. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain. Okay, that's two. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. We have a word for this. You know what the word is? Shekinah. A glory cloud. The presence of God. In Second Chronicles... The glory of God, the, the presence of God, a cloud, enters the temple. And then it comes out of the temple in Ezekiel. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Isaiah 4. This sounds like Exodus, by the way, in Isaiah. Then the Lord will create a Mount Zion over, over all the assembly, a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing fire by night. There's Exodus in Isaiah. You have Ezekiel 30, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. A day of clouds, a time of doom. Very frequently, clouds are about the manifestation of the presence of God or the fact that God is hiding. And so when you read Jesus is coming on the clouds, what it means is God's presence is now here in total, which means no more pain, which means no more suffering. You know, Jesus walks around earth. He just keeps breaking up funerals and he keeps healing people. And that's just the first coming. Now he's coming in completeness. No more injustice. No more cancer. No more death. Why? Because the presence of God is now here on earth. You know, Revelation says this way, he will wipe away our tears. You know what that means? It means he will touch you. I think about that all the time. In the presence of God, he will touch you. And all those tears from life will be wiped. It's like saying, I got you. That's the presence of God. And then lastly, judgment will come. This is Revelation 22. This is why we don't sing about it. And this is what makes people feel very uncomfortable. My reward is with me. That's to those who know him, and then verse 12, I will repay everyone for what they've done. 
Now, this is the same event, I think, as 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul writes, this is Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthians, a church he planted. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive the due of things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is 1 Corinthians 3, when he talks about doing ministry and, you know, there people build things with gold and people build things with stones and wood and hay and straw and all their work will be shown in the fire and the fire will test the quality of one's work. For the Christian, it seems that there is a potential for loss. I don't even know what that means. We're in the presence of God and yet there's a some sort of potential for loss and there is a general teaching in the New Testament that disciples will be rewarded differently based on what they've done. Here's Paul's teaching even about Apollos. I planted the seed, and this is Paul to the Corinthians, Apollos watered it. So he's talking about, we did ministry. God made it grow, but we did the work. And then here's the last line of it. The one who plants and the one who waters have a purpose and they will be rewarded. What are those rewards? I don't know. Stop guessing. Scripture doesn't tell us. But we do know that there will be a judgment rendered against the people of God. And honestly, uh, I would commend further study to you because that's challenging. Let's keep going. There's a second judgment. Back to Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They have the right to the tree of life and may go to the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs. Outside. This is a weird list, right? Those who practice magic arts, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There are people who are in and there are people who are out. And the people who are in, I mean, we just sang of this imagery. It's, re it's really weird, right? Like you have a contaminated robe. It's gross. You dip it in a vat of blood and it comes out and it's white. I mean, do you, did you hear what you're singing? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, how much? Well, you've got a vat of it on the ground. We think of it as water. Okay, it's not water. It's blood. In goes the dirty garment, and magically out it comes, and it's pure white. That's the picture. That's the gospel. And then there are those on the outside of the city. Now, the judgment of Christ is difficult, right? Why? Isn't that a weird thing to even say? Is this hard to say why? Like, is it weird to say, you know what, God, I'm not sure I agree with you? Is that weird to think? But yet that's kind of the natural inclination, right? Like, I can't really believe this because this is just, this isn't right. And yet, here's just one place that talks about it, Revelation 14. What's going to happen? Well, here it is. I looked and there before me was a white cloud. What's that again? Presence of God. And on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice, Take the sickle and reap, for the time of reaping has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Just so he, he, he who was seated on the cloud swung the sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came from the temple of heaven, and too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called out in a loud voice, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth wine, earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw it into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city 
the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So the first image is someone on a white cloud saying harvest the earth, and that's uh, not judgment of the world, it's Christians in particular. And then there's this second angel, and look what he does. He's in charge of the fire, and that's important. Why? Because in Revelation, this is where Christians are praying. How long, O Lord? This is actually an answer to prayer. God, do something because of who you are. That's Habakkuk 1. That's Revelation chapter 6. And so out comes this person to meet judgment on the world. Now, why? Why does there have to be judgment? Because if there is no judgment, there's no hope for the world. Bertrand Russell, the atheist, said, you know, if you take away the judgment, you take away God, it just, it just leads to grim, unyielding despair. What else is there if there is no just judge? And so the grapes are harvested. They're thrown into a wine press. This is a, from Isaiah 62. It's an imagery of God's judgment. And how significant is the carnage? How thorough is this? 1,600 stadia is 184 miles. That's here to Missoula at the height of a horse's bridle. Imagine how big that is to people with no airplanes, the people who travel by foot, 184 miles. Now, who's doing this? Who's doing this? The baby Jesus in the manger, who's now grown. Revelation 19. I saw in heaven standing one who had a white horse, whose rider was faithful and true. With justice he judges and make his war, makes war. His eyes are blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven followed him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword, which he will strike the nations down. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and his thigh, he has a name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's Jesus, born to those teenage parents, visited by the shepherds, visited by the wise men, whom we sing about in Silent Night. Now, treading the winepress so that the blood raises to the horse's bridle all the way from here to Missoula. So, what does that mean for us? Well, it's kind of sobering, isn't it? It's essential not to read this with glee. This is why I think churches skip this, because they've seen all these hellfire and brimstone preachers, and they're like, well, I don't want to be that, so I'm just going to skip over it and never talk about it. I mean, ask yourself, when's the last time someone spoke directly about this to you? When you have tried to share the gospel with someone, how long have you waited to bring it up? Have you brought it up ever? Or have you led with it like a jerk? We should not gloat. Christ commands emotions at death. What's the emotion he commands? Tears. Sorrow. I had a professor, Jim Pluteman. He was a missionary in Nigeria for years. Every time he would talk about someone who didn't know Christ, he would just start crying in class. 
He just started crying. We were reading a fictional book, Nectar in a Sieve, about a, a story of a girl in India. And he's just crying reading the book. That's the emotion. You know, there's the hymn, the battle hymn of the Republic. I hate that hymn for this reason. There's a way in which to sing it which is wrong. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the winepress where the grapes of wrath is stored. La, 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 la. Isn't this amazing? Celebration? Happy? Is that the response? That's not the response it's called for. This passage, of course, debunks the view that the God of the New Testament is soft and the God of the Old Testament is wrong. Here's what I think happens and why this view happens. It's because the Old Testament, there's a lot of war. In the New Testament, there's not war, there's hell. And we don't see that, but we see war. We hate war. I hate war. We all hate war. But when we don't see it, we don't believe it. And just last, I think it just impresses on, on us the importance of the gospel. One of the pastor from a couple centuries ago wrote this, thinking about this passage. I know not whether I, what others think, but for my own part, I'm ashamed at my stupidity. I wonder at myself that I deal not with my own or other souls as one who's looking for this great day and that I can have no room for almost any other thought or words and that such astonishing matters do not wholly absorb my mind. I marvel that I can preach so coldly and that I can let people alone in their sins, that I do not go to them. I beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they may take it and whatever pain it might cost me or them. That's sobering, right? The thoroughness of what Jesus is talking about, and it's probably be why people churches skip it. Why? Because I don't want to be a fanatic. Who wants to sign up for this and be a fanatic? Because that's what you are. If you believe this, even you, as you share the gospel, you're like, well, this person's not really quite ready for this. So you get to the cross and you're like, well, what do you say from? He's like, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. He just loves you. So maybe I should just end it with this. Could you stand? Psalm 130 has this haunting question in it. Verse 3 of Psalm 130. If you, Lord, keep a record of sins, who could stand? Who's going to pass this test? I mean, truly. If you think about the return of Christ, I'm thinking, uh, I'm guessing you think about how he's going to deal with others. No, how's he going to deal with you? Revelation 22 says, there are those who are let into the city, only those who have been dipped, robes have been dipped in blood. Psalm 130, actually, I'm, I'm baiting and switching you again. Psalm 130 says this, who, if, who could stand if you keep a record of wrong, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. You know, we've been speaking a lot of Matthew 24, and you can go read it. And Matthew 24, what's it say? It says, this, you know, there's going to be an earthquake. The rocks are going to split. Another passage, sun, or no, in Matthew 24, sun's going to be darkened. And guess what? Three chapters later in Matthew, what happens? Earthquake, rocks split. In another gospel, what happens? Sun darkened. Why? Because on the cross, the judgment of God is met out on Jesus. Remember Revelation 22? They're outside of the city. They're kept outside. Where did Jesus die? Outside the city. Abandoned. Sun goes out. Earthquake shakes the earth, rocks split in half, curtain torn in two. This is the judge of the universe taking judgment on himself. 
for you. I can tell you what your future is based on what you think about Jesus. I, I have a friend who went down to where the voodoo queens in New Orleans were once, and they had all these tables. We'll tell you your, your uh, future for a fee. And he set up a table, sat there with a Bible, and, and he said, I'll tell it to you for free. And then everyone lined up, and he opened the Bible and showed them the truth. Jesus is coming soon, and when he comes, he is bringing the presence of God, his reward, and judgment. Are you ready? Look at how the book of Revelation ends. The spirit and the bride says, come. Let the one who hears, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to taste the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Did you catch all those? You have the Holy Spirit say, there's a lot of debate of who's speaking here, but the Spirit says come, the church says come, and then there is this call to everyone who hears these words, and you come too. So Jesus come back, and everyone who wants to taste the free gift of the water of life, anyone who wants to come into the city for free, you may come if you dip your robe in the blood of the lamb. This is not do something for God and get the robe. This is, there's